Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So we want to get started on time. Actually, we'll start a minute later. Then one time, we're already, uh, now that Dr. here, we well, can start. Uh, probably, probably, I'll introduce myself first, since I don't think any of you may know me. I, uh, my name's Chuck Smith, and I taught uh, the Institute of World Politics from 03 to 12, first as an adjunct, and then, uh, and then I was, uh, academic dean from 2010 to 2012, and then I got uh, retired because uh, it was a very demanding post-retirement job now. But, uh, so that said, uh, to me, like almost everybody here, everybody doesn't know this place, it's uh, it's two World Politics, IWP. Uh, it's a graduate school of uh, national security and international affairs, and uh, one of the themes, I guess, of the faculty is that we are uh, we are scholar practitioners, and we are uh, uh, almost to a person. In the old days, I'd have said to a man, but then again, it may offend somebody. Who well, anybody have probably done that. Uh, so the, the, the guy I'm going to introduce, uh, uh, Professor Bill Miller, Marymount University. Uh, my pleasure to work with him for. Uh, quarter century almost, and uh, he, uh, I taught the course here, uh, Founding Principles on foreign, American Foreign Policy, uh, Dr. Miller is a founder, Professor Miller, you like to call doctor, uh, 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 Professor Miller's founder, he actually founded the politics program at Marymount and uh, made it a very successful uh, program in the undergraduate level, and uh, at the same time, uh, one of the more demanding programs on the undergraduate level at Marymount. Uh, I say scholar practitioner. Uh, he was educated at, in graduate work at uh, the University of Notre Dame, where he studied under the uh, late, great Gerhard Niemeyer uh, in politics, political science, and also uh, received uh, not just his PhD, but a JD, and studied uh, uh, under Charles Rice, uh, very uh, outstanding um, the, uh, law professor uh, who also was uh, steeped in natural law, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, professor Miller has practiced, uh, has been a, st a scholar practitioner. Uh, the, res the resume fits to T uh, this uh, school. Uh, he served as an attorney in private practice in Pennsylvania and uh, served in a, a Judiciary Committee of the United States Senate and uh, also taught law at Widener University and uh, has served on various uh, litigation teams in D.C. and written a work titled A Primer on American Courts. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Um, and uh, as I said, he was founder. He founded the uh, Marymount uh, Politics Program in 1986, and uh, there he teaches uh, he teaches ideology, political theory, con law, uh, and also uh, has taught uh, uh, American foreign policy and international relations and American government. I used to teach regularly. Uh, it's influenced, as it says, I don't know how many have seen the blurb. Uh, influenced by his uh, late prof, Ger Gerhard Niemeyer, and he, uh, to him, my estimation, uh, opinion, not humble, but I'll give it, uh, certainly not humble opinion, two greatest uh, political uh, theorists in the uh, history of uh, American academia, Eric Boglin and Leo Strauss. Uh, the, uh, and I pretty much uh, exhausted him. You used all my time, but I do want to say that, uh, he got us a, a, a Bachelor of Arts at uh, Gettysburg College, and, and I mentioned that because at Gettysburg College, uh, Professor Miller uh, studied a, a humanities program that went from Plato all the way uh, 
well into the 20th century. It was really a, a century of great books, a set of courses. And uh, if not before, at Gettysburg, uh, Bill Miller got, uh, he just uh, got absorbed with and into his soul a love for the humanities and the great books. I, I just had to mention that. Uh, that, that part. I made that part up. I mean, it's true, but I was, that wasn't part of the, the uh, prepared text. I'm getting out of Always oh, going to talk about ideology, a term that has probably too many usages and too many meaning, meanings, and he's going to sort them out for us in the next 55 minutes. Okay. I take your charge, Dr. Miller. I retire again. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that. I want to thank uh, Jason and uh, Jordan also for helping to set this up, but particularly Chuck for encouraging me to do this. It's good to be back at IWP. I taught here a few years ago in this very room, uh, just about as many people, maybe, uh, and uh, enjoyed my time here very, very much. Uh, Chuck didn't mention that uh, he and I both come from uh, cigar-making families. Uh, so yeah, we can talk about that, and uh, uh, I think I have one over him. I also come from a bootlegging family, so uh, I, cigar, -like, cigar making and bootlegging, I, I think I have things pretty much covered. And what grabbed me at Gettysburg, quite honestly, was uh, Aristotle. I read Aristotle for the first time, and something happened, and that, that's the answer to get truth. Anyway, ideology. <clears throat> the idea for this talk came from a textbook that I recently received, and reviewed for possible adoption in my foreign policy course. The title of the text, Ideologies of American Foreign Policy by Callahan, O'Connor, and Fithian, appealed to me because I thought it focused on a subject of great importance, the influence of ideological thought on public policy in general and on 20th and 21st century foreign policy in particular. But when I read the first chapter, the question of ideology, I was confused. The author's understanding of political ideology was certainly not my understanding and was, quite frankly, so indistinct and broad that I could not pin it down. I decided to follow up on the sources cited in the text, and the second part of this lecture today reflects my reading of those sources. Uh, I had discussed this with Chuck over the summer, and uh, that's, that's where I got the encouragement to pursue this because it was, it was very strange. I should, have not, should not have been surprised by the author's account, I suppose, because the word ideology has been used to mean a lot of different things other than the meaning that I am most familiar with. I was somewhat comforted in my confused state when I opened one of the principal sources cited by the textbook authors, Terry Eagleton's Ideology, and I found his list of 16 definitions of the term ideology that were currently in use. Karl Mannheim, one of the most influential theorists of ideology, began his extended discussion of ideology with the comment, firstly, we have to disentangle all the different shades of meaning which are blended into a pseudo-unity. And I could go on and on. It seems every book about uh, uh, ideology begins the same way. At that point, I decided that it may be useful, to me at least, to pick the major meanings out from the tangle and try to make some sense of them. In order to dress up this sow's ear of a lecture into something like a silk purse presentation, I might claim that it's like one of Plato's early aporetic dialogues, those frustrating and irritating discussions about the true meaning of some significant and much used term like courage or piety, only to end without a clear conclusion, without a neat answer to the question of what the, what the term means. And that, I'm afraid, is what I will have to tell you today a description of the established traditions of, usage or of usages or meanings of the term ideology with some personal comments mixed in, but no clear definition at the end. The meanings of ideology in the traditions that I'm going to talk about are related, but they're not identical to one another. And they are now so well established that it's too late and futile to argue that one or the other meaning or any meaning for that matter, is the correct meaning of ideology. You may recall, however, that those early Platonic dialogues were mercifully short. So, uh, hang in there. If this were a lecture in chemistry, and I were explaining the correct definition of the term sodium chloride, it would be a different story. Within the context of the science of chemistry, 
and its systematic and technical language, there is and must be only one universally acceptable and accepted definition of sodium chloride, or serious consequences will follow. Ambiguity is not permitted. But for the terms in the less systematic science of politics and in common discourse, ambiguity cannot be eradicated. Many words are used as labels for very different ideas, and those labels are well-established, alas, and legitimate, as much as I hate to admit it. Even in the confines of political science, the term ideology has well-established but distinctly different meanings. It's too late to lock the barn door to prevent the theft of the label, but perhaps we can turn on the barnyard lights and shed a little light on the subject. All users that I have come across agree that ideology is some form of thought, though some would not limit it to just thought. When we discuss the nature of a type of thought, ideology, philosophy, theory, doctrine, dogma, belief systems, worldviews, culture, public opinion, and so on, we immediately run into the problem of language. All the terms I just mentioned are used so often and in so many different ways that in examining them, analyzing or breaking them down, defining them, we find ourselves stumbling over our own feet, using as tools vague and undefined terms in an effort to arrive at clear and distinct ideas. And so it's our effort today to determine or clarify the, the meaning of the term ideology. Not only is the term ideology used as a label for many different concepts, but those other terms are as well. Therefore, we can only follow the path of Plato in these early dialogues, if you will, and hope that our discussion leads in the end to some greater clarity about the subject. From the sources I surveyed, I concluded that there are two main traditions of usage or meaning of the term ideology. <coughs> the first of which I labeled the Epicurean or materialist tradition. The second, I labeled the apocalyptic or political religion tradition. But before considering those traditions, let me begin with a couple of common usages. Ideology is often used simply as a synonym for philosophy. This, it seems to me, was particularly common early in the 20th century. Philosophy denotes the search for truth, and for truth about the most fundamental aspects of life. Ideology, whether as a science or study or as a set of ideas, does not search for truth about the permanent things. I, and as it turns out, a lot of students of this subject, for various reasons, wish this were not so. But until some video or podcast criticizing this usage goes viral worldwide, I don't think we have much hope for change. So that one, I think, is here to stay. A second usage is very similar to the first one, but it has a better pedigree and is used with more discipline. In the United States, at least, journalists and political scientists who study voting behavior generally, voting behavior generally, and legislative voting behavior in particular, use the term ideological to differentiate a certain type of voting from other common types. Thus, an ideological vote is distinguished from a party vote, which one that reflects the wishes of one's party, and from a constituent vote, one reflecting the perceived wishes of one's constituents. The late political scientist James Q. Wilson defined political ideology as a coherent and consistent set of beliefs about who ought to rule, what principles rulers ought to obey, and what policies rulers ought to pursue. This concept of ideology is usually identified with the emergence of the liberal and conservative political movements in the United States in the mid-20th century. An ideological vote, then, was one rooted in these two ideologies, a liberal vote or a conservative vote, not in the cues from the Democratic or Republican Party leaders or the material interests of the constituents. Though I railed against this usage for years, I have finally and reluctantly come to accept that narrowly employed it is a useful definition, it left the barn. So there's nothing to do about that one, I guess. We come then to the first major tradition that I'd like to look at here in some, in some detail. And this is the one that I was not particularly familiar with. Materialist or Epicurean tradition, a complex of ideas stemming from the very term ideology and its origins. 
is is the tradition embraced by the authors of the foreign policy textbook that I mentioned a moment ago, and it must be accorded pride of place in the history and usage of the term. The tradition today is identified with the Frankfurt School of Social Theory. It's represented in Europe and the United States by a number of influential social, literary, and political theorists, two of whom, Terry Eagleton and Michael Frieden, are prominently cited in the Callahan foreign policy textbook. It also rests largely on the contributions of Marxists, both orthodox and unorthodox, <coughs> from the late 19th century up to the present. In proceeding through the twists and turns of this 225-year history, I want to make four stops. The first with the founder of ideology, Karl uh, de Tracy. The second with Karl Marx. The third with Karl Mannheim and the fourth with the aforementioned Terry Eagleton and Michael Frieden, de Tracy. The origin of the term ideology can be determined with great accuracy, and the story is often retold, <clears throat> probably because it's so easy to tell, because the term is only 225 years old. The term ideology was coined by de Tracy and first publicly pronounced by him in a lecture in April 1796. It emerged from the Epicurean intellectual environment of the Lockean Enlightenment and its materialist ontology, which was prominent among French intellectuals in the late 18th century. Ontology, the core of metaphysics, is the study of the order of being, the study of the fundamental structure of reality, the, the study of what's really real. For these materialist thinkers, materialist ontology, reality consists entirely of physical matter and motion. Our thoughts, ideas, and therefore all knowledge, which are perhaps not physical things, must be products of our bodily sensations. Ultimately, they must be the direct result of physical causation. Hence, the term sensationalism or sensualism is often used and applied to this theory of knowledge, or this epistemology, this theory of knowledge. The formation of ideas and thoughts, therefore, is in principle subject to observation or science. And it was precisely this empirical science that Tracy proposed as ideology. The premise of this science, that ideas must be understood as a product of physical or, environment, or environmental causes, I would argue is still the fundamental assumption of this tradition. With the ontological assumption that only the material is real, went the scientific method of analysis, breaking each idea down into its clear, distinct, observable component parts. And what better subject matter to analyze than the fuzzy ideas of religion and, the exist and of the existing French and European culture that was rooted in medieval tradition, mystery, Superstition. Emmett Kennedy points out that in coining the term and introducing the new science, Tracy and his compatriots did not intend it to be a disinterested discipline. They had an agenda. They intended it to be a useful tool for a broad philosophical and political program that included making ideology rather than religion the foundation of morals replacing ontology, or classical metaphysics, with this science of ideas, and establishing a liberal, secular, republican government in France. Though once a supporter of the, ideolog of the ideology project, Napoleon quickly changed his mind after taking power and uttered his famous criticism of those ideologues. The pejorative sense thus acquired by the term ideology taints it to this day. Napoleon was not alone in his sentiments, by the way. Our own president, John Adams, he was no longer president, but he called ideology the science of idiocy. Jefferson, of course, defended it. Indeed, within a few years of, his appearance in seven, of its appearance in 1796, the commonly recognized meaning of the term had morphed into a science, from a science or study of ideas to a particular set of ideas to be studied went from a verb to a noun, from an empirical science to an empirical phenomenon, itself to be studied. In Kennedy's words, 
Ideology was, in the minds of its founders, more than the Greek translation of science of ideas. It was a political and social ideology as well. The term continued to be applied to the liberal Republicans in Tracy's circle, who were sometimes in power, sometimes in opposition over the next half century. But ideology also came to be applied to rival political factions who rested their agendas on abstract ideas. When Marx began writing in the 1840s, ideology was still often associated with the liberal, or perhaps we might say market Republicans. Indeed, Emmett Kennedy points out that Marx learned the term directly from reading Tracy's treatise on liberal economics. But according to Daniel Bell, in Marx's thought, the meaning of the term underwent some curiously different transmutations. Marx, like Napoleon, identified ideology with mistaken ideas and mistaken philosophy. In his early work, The German Ideology, in which he went after the young Hegelians who were influential among the German intelligentsia of the time, Marx said, there is no specific difference between German idealism and the ideology of all the other nations. His point here is that ideology or idealism, philosophic idealism, is fundamentally wrong because it puts the cart before the horse. The eternal truths and ideas that the dominant political groups and societies rely upon to legitimize their regimes are actually created by those very groups and imposed upon the rest of society in order to secure the elite's authority. These dominant ideas, standards, ideals, are fashioned by the political elites to serve their own interests. They are not objectively true. They are permeated with self-delusion and self-interested lies and deceit. Reality, understood as material reality, is, according to Marx, the true basis of ideas, not vice versa. These abstract principles duplicitously reflect the real material interests of the dominant political class, which is also, of course, the dominant economic class in Marx's scenario. As such, the ideas and principles need to be debunked, analyzed, or as he would call it, unmasked, in order to get at the truth. And this function of unmasking continues to present-day understandings of ideology. Though Marx never used the term false consciousness, and only one instance of that term can be attributed to Engels, the term false consciousness has been adopted by many Marxist and non-Marxist sociologists in this setting. The attitudes and beliefs, the consciousness that has been instilled into most members of society is not objectively true. It's not what it seems. It must be unmasked in order to understand the true material interests beneath it. Marx's use of the term ideology to refer to the ideas that the dominant political group promulgates in order to legitimize its rule is still one of the primary functions of the term in Marxist literature. If, Marx views, if Marx's view of ideology was so negative and so limited to the false ideas of the elites in power, how is it that the Marxist thinkers have been the principal caretakers and nurturers may we call them proprietors, of the idea of ideology in the years after Marx. And to understand that, I believe we must look at another Marxist idea presented in the manifesto. Marx famously said, your very ideas are but an outgrowth of the, of the conditions of your bourgeois production and property, just as your jurisprudence is but the will of your class made into a law for all. And a few pages later, does it require deep intuition to comprehend that man's ideas, views, conceptions, in one word, man's consciousness, changes with every change in the conditions of his material existence, in his social relations, and in his social life? Marx did not identify this totality of consciousness that I just described with ideology here in the manifesto or elsewhere in his writings, but the association is obvious. Here is explicitly stated the Epicurean or materialist theory of the physical or material causes of ideas. 
And by Epicurean, I'm going back to uh, Lucretius in particular, first century BC, who lays all of this out. There's very little new in the last 2,000 years in this, in this whole theory. Marx here goes beyond classical Epicurean ontology, however, not just matter emotion. In orthodox materialist fashion, Marx certainly identified the causes of ideas with our physical environment. But he identifies the causes specifically with the prevailing economic conditions, the dominant mode of production. The emphasis upon the economic causes was part of his larger conception of dynamic or historical materialism. And here he certainly does go beyond the tradition, the Epicurean tradition. Marx projected a narrative onto all human history. Our physical environment, the cosmos, is not a static order. It is dynamic. It's teleological. That is, it's headed in a particular direction. And the engine of this movement is the evolving mode of production necessary to human life. He termed this engine at one point the economic base of society. I've not been able to nail down the economic substructure in his writings, or I would have said that. And in any society, he said, the masters and representatives of the dominant economic class will acquire political power and project their ideas based on economic self-interest onto the rest of society. The economic political elites established what Gramsci later termed a cultural hegemony, an ideological superstructure, which he also didn't use, that rests on the economic self-interests of the dominant class. The problem is that the economic system that is the foundation of our ideas at any one time is constantly in the process of necessary change and evolution toward its final socialist destination. In this economically based society, the roles people play in society, which is necessarily out of step with the economic laws of history, always lagging behind a bit, are what Marx, these roles are what Marx refers to as character masks. The object of studying ideology for Marxists has been the unmasking of the false ideas which actually disguise the true economic interests beneath. This Marxist conception of ideological disguises and the need for unmasking to get to the truth is fundamental to the classic work Ideology and Utopia by Karl Mannheim in 1929. By this time, a number of Marxists had come to doubt the primacy of economics in the formation of people's thoughts and ideas, and to doubt Marx's economic laws of history as well. But they continued to identify themselves with Marxism and to explore the issues raised by the materialist conception of the origin of all consciousness. Mussolini, as you know, uh, was a Marxist theorist, and this is, this is the issue upon uh, which he broke with, uh, with the orthodox Marxism as well. But Karl Mannheim has arguably been the most influential voice in this stage of the development of the materialist tradition. Mannheim, a sociologist famous for his concept of the sociology of knowledge, began his intellectual life as a Marxist and contributed a number of key concepts to this tradition of ideology. His most significant contribution, perhaps, was his rejection of economic class as the fundamental and necessary driver of consciousness. Mannheim identified the origins of our consciousness with all historical and social environments. Again, well within the Epicurean tradition. Mannheim also followed the logic of the materialist conceptions of reality and of man as a non-exceptional part of physical reality, we're all just atoms floating around. We're all just matter in motion. To argue that not only our consciousness, our conscious thoughts and ideas, are products of the environment, but also our unconscious motivations for those thoughts, feelings, urges, and ideas. If I could use the term, our unconsciousness. Our unconsciousness. All of this is subject to empirical observation, the causal the empirical causes of the consciousness and unconsciousness. So it's subject to empirical observation and thus to scientific investigation, namely sociology. The emergence, he says, of the problem of the multiplicity of thought styles 
which have appeared in the course of scientific development and the perceptibility of collective unconscious motives hitherto hidden is only one aspect of the intellectual restiveness which characterizes our age. So now we can know not only what takes place in the one consciously, but also unconsciously. From here, it is but a short step to identifying ideology with nonverbal behavior as well, as Michael Frieden does in his concepts of thought practice and political thought behavior, which I'll take a look at in a moment. With this assertion of the environmental determination of our conscious and unconscious lives, an idea implicit in Marx's manifesto statements on consciousness becomes explicit. Ideology is coextensive with and impossible to distinguish from all human culture. The study of all conscious actions, including the identifications of the unconscious motivations of our actions, is a function of sociology and can all be referred to as ideology. Uh, in that book, he famously contributes the concepts of a total ideology, which would be a, the uh, uh, comparable or, or coextensive with a culture, with a civilization, and a partial ideology, which is the ideas, structure, form for a particular group or interest group or party. And then he also includes uh, the concept of utopia, which, again, if you look at it, is just another form of an alternative total ideology that provides ideals, provides uh, goals that may be an alternative to uh, those people who are, for one reason or another, not particularly satisfied with the total ideology under which they live. As Michael Frieden remarks, Monheim implicitly resurrected the agenda of Destut de Tracy that Marx and Engels had largely ignored. Ideology was again an empirical science and was central to the, to the science of sociology. Monheim set the stage for the contemporary discussions of ideology that I surveyed and that I'll turn to right now. But if you read Monheim, don't be put off, read Monheim, and then read some of the contemporary uh, uh, theorists, uh, I find very little difference. I find a great continuity there. Uh, they, they're, they're talking the same language. Uh, there hasn't been a, a marked break between his period, uh, I think he died in the 1930s, and, and the current day. I finally turn to two contemporary students of ideology, the Marxist literary theorist, Terry Eagleton, and the philosopher, Michael Frieden, both prominently cited in the foreign policy textbook as authorities on the subject. And that's why I learned it. Taking a look at Eagleton's book first, his study is helpful for someone looking into this materialist tradition of ideology for the first time. His book is a witty and frequently humorous intellectual history of ideology with chapters entitled From Lukacs to Gramsci, both Marxists, and From Adorno to Bordeaux, both Marxists. His purpose in the chapter entitled What is Ideology was precisely my own purpose. As I mentioned earlier, he begins by listing 16 definitions of ideology currently in circulation. His goal to find a useful one. As it were, after a mighty struggle that made me think of someone trying to move about in a very small room in which everything is covered with a very sticky coating, or perhaps someone caught in a spider's web, he finds six. So we whittle it down at least from 12 or 15, 16 to, to six, I guess, progress. The stickiness comes from his every attempt to find a distinctive use for the term. The critical or analytical terms that he uses to approach ideological phenomena are themselves ideological products. They've themselves been uh, analyzed to death. And the interests, personal interests, that many, including Marx, think are behind the disguises have also been deemed to be ideological constructions by other theorists. So you can't get, you can't get out of it. You can't get away from it. Ideology seems to have a claim on all human thought. In the course of his survey, he rejects the definition that all thought and action is ideological, because if everything's ideological, then what does it mean to be not ideological? To explain everything as ideological is to explain nothing, he says. 
a selection or selections must be made. He concludes that in studying ideologies, we are dealing less with some essence of ideology than with an overlapping network of family resemblances between different styles of signification, whatever that means. He ultimately settles on two meanings or usages, both of which relate belief systems to political power. One, he says, refers to the ways which many signs, meanings, and values help to reproduce a dominant social power, shades of Marx's definition. And the other denotes significant conjunctures, I've never seen that word before, between discourse and political interests. Discourse has also been highly defined and is basically interactive verbal conflict. I didn't know that. As a literary critic, his discussions often focus on language and its use in fighting to obtain power or to defend against the power of others. This is also one of the major factors in Michael Frieden's theory of ideology. Where Eagleton seems to be a customer looking for a useful tool, Michael Frieden is a recognized theorist of ideology. His major work is a possibly comprehensible treatise entitled Ideologies and Political Theory, a Conceptual Framework, or Conceptual Approach, which runs to almost 600 pages of the densest prose that I have attempted since Hegel's Phenomenology, and with about the same success I might add. Unsurprisingly, I found his book, Ideology, a very short introduction, much more helpful. Uh, in it, he places the theory of ideology in the contemporary European intellectual world, and he stirs in post-Marxism, post-structuralism, post-modernism, as well as political ideologies, non-political ideologies, and identity politics into the mix. The principal contributors to the tradition that Frieden cites are Marx, Mannheim, Louis Althusser, a rather uh, orthodox Marxist, and Antonio Gramsci, also relatively orthodox uh, in his Marxism. Where Eagleton perused the alternatives and reasoned his way to a selection of useful concepts of ideology, Frieden constructs an elaborate theory of ideology that does not seem to exclude anything. He contributes a substantial glossary of analytic terms such as micro-ideologies, macro-ideologies, thin ideologies, the four P's, proximity, priority, permeability, proportionality, decontestation, deconstruction, encoding and decoding ideological signs, and of course, discourse analysis. Frieden condensed his 600 pages into 100. If I were to attempt to reduce that to a couple of paragraphs, I don't think I could do it. Nevertheless, I got to give it a shot. So perhaps we can summarize his understanding in his own words as ideology is a set of ideas, beliefs, opinions, and values that exhibit a recurring pattern that's shared with Mana, are held by significant groups, compete over providing and controlling plans for public policy, and do so with the aim of justifying contesting or changing the social and political arrangements in the processes of a political community. He says it is a wide-ranging structural arrangement that attributes meaning to a range of mutually defining political concepts and symbols. And he says that com competition over the control of political language, as well as competing over plans for public policy, is central to it. He adds that competition over the control of political language is primary. The expression of ideas, beliefs, and values is both verbal and behavioral, as I just mentioned. Rather than give a summary there, let me move on to the second tradition and make sure I cover that with some completeness. The second major tradition, and the one that I have adhered to since my grad school days, applies the term ideology primarily, if not exclusively, to one set of ideologies recognized by both Eagleton and Frieden. Frieden refers to them as the repulsive ideology. 
Eagleton refers to them as the oppositional ideologies. I prefer the deplorable ideologies, but that's just personal preference. It is well described by Richard Watkins, who I was introduced to by Chuck. Ideologies, Watkins says, are sets of ideas involving visionary and grandiose schemes of social change. Watkins reflects his awareness of the ongoing debate over the meaning of ideology in the materialist tradition that I have just described in his 1964 book, The Age of Ideology. But he chooses to use the term in a more limited, yet ironically more familiar sense. He says, in this book, we do not pursue this lively intellectual debate over the nature and function of ideology. We use the term in its most common, circa 1964, colloquial sense as a set of ideas involving visionary and grandiose schemes of social change. I have tried to find the clear origin of this narrower usage of the term in the mid-20th century, but I, I have not been able to do so. I, have, there's, I certainly have some evidence of when it starts, but that I cannot nail it down to a particular, to a particular usage. The two prototypical ideologies for Daniel Bell and, and uh, Frederick Watkins, of course, were Nazism and Marxism. Both movements were grounded on cosmic scenarios projected upon the world that take in all human history, past, present, and future. Both reduced the causes of all human history and human action scientifically to a single factor, economic or biological. Both laid out a path to the future, which, with a bit of revolutionary human help, was eminently possible, if not inevitable. The future for both ideologies was envisioned as utopian, wonderful and free of the evils of the present. The future would be different from the present, not just because it was better, but because it was perfect. The future would continue until the time, end of time, or at least for an unimaginably long time, say a thousand years, depending upon whether one's conception of history was linear like Marx's or cyclical like Hitler's. There were forces opposing the revolution. It would be a struggle. But victory over the opponents was in the cards. The revolution would succeed if everyone did what was necessary to achieve this perfect human order. To those of us of the West and of the Abrahamic religious tradition, this picture of the future clearly suggested the promised heaven on earth, or more particularly, the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints and martyrs after Satan had been cast into the abyss, the original millennium of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation which is also known, of course, as the Book of the Apocalypse. It's no wonder that these 20th century political movements were analyzed in religious terms that seemed particularly fitting to the subject. The future was visionary or apocalyptic. Despite the claims of scientific proof, the future continued until the end of time. It was eschatological vision. Or it lasted a thousand years, literally a millennium. It was millenarian or chiliastic, if you prefer the Greek. As Daniel Bell puts it, these movements were secular religions, or as the psychoanalyst and prolific author Eric Frome wrote in his sympathetic introduction to Marx's early writings, Frome said, Marx's aim, socialism, based on his theory of man, is essentially prophetic messianism, messiah, in the language of the 19th century. The idea that ideologies may be likened to religions was not original with Bell or with Frome. In the 1930s, American historian Carl Becker cited the work of Alexis de Tocqueville for this insight. In 1856, de Tocqueville said of that other great ideological revolution, the Jacobin phase of the French Revolution, in all of the annals of recorded history, we find no mention of any political revolution that took this form. Its only parallel is to be found in certain religious revolutions. The French Revolution, he continued, though ostensibly uh, political in origin, functioned on the lines and assumed many of the aspects of a religious revolution. Becker applied to Tocqueville's insight to his own attempt to understand the Bolshevik Revolution, which had taken place a dozen years before his 1932 book, the heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers. I highly recommend it. And now, in our day, he said, the first act of the social revolution accompanied and sustained by the communist faith has just been staged in Russia. 
Becker continues, the Russian is like, the Russian is most of all like the French Revolution in this, that its leaders, having received the tablets of eternal law, regard the revolution not merely as an instrument of political and social reform, but as much more as the realization of a philosophy of life, which being universally valid, and because it is in harmony with science and history, must prevail. For this reason, the Russian Revolution, like the French Revolution, has its dogmas, its ceremonial, its saints. And a few years after Becker's book, Vogelin wrote a book entitled The Political Religions, a thinly veiled critique of the Nazi Revolution during his own time. That's 45 minutes. Shall I finish a bit? Or I was told that this is to last 45 minutes. I don't want to go over time at all. You tell me what to do. Yeah, finish. I must acknowledge here also what is perhaps the most influential work by a 20th century historian and required reading for any student of ideology in this second tradition of political religion, Norman Cohn's Pursuit of the Millennium, first published in 1957. Cohn describes the revolutionary millennium or revolutionary millennialism of the Middle Ages and chronicles the revolutionary millenarians and mystical anarchists from the 8th to the 16th century. Cohn traces the structure and the course of development of many revolutionary Chiliastic movements, and in his final edition, he explicitly relates it to the Nazi and Marxist revolutions of his day. Cohn concludes that, quote, the parallels and indeed the continuity are incontestable. Daniel Bell, a former Marxist, uh, and a sociologist uh, who fell out with the, the, the uh, uh, Marxist argues persuasively, I think, that the rise of political ideologies as secular religions owes its development to the broad loss of faith in the 19th century. Bell compared ideology and philosophy and their focus on ideas and truth. Philosophy, he argues, seeks to eliminate passion from the rational comprehension of ideas. Ideology is essentially active, the passionate application of ideas, or flipping the figure, the channeling of emotion through ideas. Contrasted to religion, which also essentially channels emotional energy, Bell said ideology channels the energy into the politics of this world. Religion channels it away from earthly concerns onto the litany, the liturgy, the sacraments, the edifices, the arts. Religion, according to Bell, also provides a way to cope with death and the fear of death, which ideology does not. He says, it may well be that with the decline in religious faith in the last century or more, and he wrote in the mid-1950s, this fear of death as total annihilation, unconsciously expressed, has probably increased. One may hypothesize, in fact, that here, is a cause for the breakthrough of the irrational, which is such a marked feature of the changed moral temper of our time. Fanaticism, violence, cruelty are not, of course, unique in human history. But there was a time when such frenzies and mass emotions could be displaced, symbolized, drained away, dispersed through religious devotion and practice. Now there's only this life, and the assertion of self becomes possible, for some even necessary, in the domination over others. Referring to the events, catastrophic events occurring between the 1930s and the 1950s in Europe, he says, for the radical intellectual who had articulated the revolutionary impulses of the past century and a half, all this has meant an end to the chiliastic hopes, to millenarianism, to apocalyptic thinking, and to ideology. Uh, and I understand him to mean by that, that when you look even at the communists, many of the thoughtful Marxists looked at Soviet uh, Union and they said, this is not what, not what we expected. Uh, the original Marxist uh, hope or, or imagination is not there and thus lost the faith. I think that's what he's, what he's talking about. Eliminating the faith in universal progress that animated so much of uh, 19th century reformers uh, and eliminating the miraculous intervention of the secular turn of the 19th century, 
makes the central idea of the revolutionary struggle the order to or the effort to establish an earthly paradise or utopia, or as it was famously stated, to immanentize the eschaton. Uh, let me give a few conclusions here and uh, and wrap up. What are the main contrasts that we can draw between the previous conceptions of tradition uh, or tradition of ideology and the, the present one, between uh, materialist and apocalyptic? or political religion ideology. First, in the study of political ideologies conducted within this latter tradition that I just described, the term ideology is not really necessary. The analysis of the French, Russian, German revolutions is not enhanced by any recognizable concept of ideology. Political religion seems to work for de Tocqueville and Becker quite nicely. Students of these uh, of these phenomena are not interested in finding a proper use for the term. They are concerned with finding the essential and secondary characteristics of the movements themselves and the ideas. In their discussions of this subject matter, neither Vogelin nor Niemeyer characterized it consistently as ideology. Vogelin, of course, used the term political religion in his early book, later referred to this mode of thought as doxa, opinion, and also Gnosticism. Niemeyer used the term total critique of society, arguing that such comprehensive condemnations of existing cultures take two forms, an axiological critique based on an underlying natural order of human existence that has been covered up and hidden over time, and a teleological critique which views the present from the perspective of an imaginary future or telos of history. That's why I used that term earlier in the, in the uh, lecture. Um, this brings us to the significant distinction between the materialist conception and the political religion conception. For the materialists, the general understanding of ideology, ideology is sociological. As Frieden says, insofar as it focuses on ideas, the ideas are maintained by people as beliefs. They animate and motivate human action. For those in the political religion tradition, it is the ideas themselves that are the essence of ideology. The study of ideology is philosophical. A forgotten manuscript, long, a forgotten manuscript, uh, long hidden away by every from everyone, may indeed contain a political ideology, according to this last tradition, because of the argument that it presents. Just as it may present a non-ideological argument or some other type of, of uh, literature, it does not have to be maintained or held as believed by anyone in particular. Ideology is generally understood as a deformation of philosophy or theory, whether or not anyone believes it at any given time. As a pretense of philosophy, an ideological set of ideas can be evaluated on the basis of the soundness of its concepts, the aptness of its symbols. It can be determined to be true or false. Vogelin argues that ideologies all ignore one of the four fundamental components of reality, the natural, the individual, the social, or the divine and they substitute an imaginary idea for the component that is ignored. Philosophy assumes that true reality can be apprehended by human mind. Much contemporary ideology does not, including the authors of the textbook that I was looking at uh, uh, at the beginning of this paper. If you were to ask, after all of this, do I think that there is a, uh, so what is ideology? Does ideology describe some particular discrete aspect of reality? Is it an empirical science? Or if there is no reality other than thought, human consciousness and unconsciousness, does it describe some unique type of thought or consciousness? Does the term generally serve some useful purpose? After going over this, uh, immersing myself as much as possible over the last few months, I would say no. There's nothing particularly unique about it. Again, which is the source of the, of the uh, title of the, the paper. For some reason or another, a whole tradition, mostly Marxist, mostly Marxist influenced, but they hold on to that term and be damned they're going to find a use for it. And they, you can go through the literature and find just about every possible ima uh, imaginable use for the, for the term. But is there one that stands out? Is there one that's going to stand the test of time? So far, that has not occurred. So that's about it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
any questions, I'd be glad to take any questions. Of course. Excellent. Then I've, I've, I've answered everything. I've accomplished my purpose. Life is good. I <laughs> I promised my students that I would post it for them if they asked for it, but uh, they had had to put up with a lot over the last couple of weeks, so it's going to be available to them. So. I have a question. Sure. That was a great lecture, by the way. Well, thank you. I mean, I was so impressed with the comprehensive overview of that subject. I thought I knew a little bit about ideology, but I learned a great deal. My question is this. It's affected so many uh, countries. It has such a, the age of ideology is a, is a very profound insight. To summarize the 20th century, look what ideology has done to Germany in the 1930s. China, Russia, Cuba, it, this goes on and on and on. It's, it's affected every one of those things under whatever term. So my question is, how has it affected this country? Do you think that the United States is immune from ideology? That We've never had a coup d'etat. We've had a consistent, we have 45 presidents or Whatever. Something like that, uh, 44 and a half. And, uh, you know, Je Je Jeff give Jefferson his due. Okay, come on. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I, did, I wonder if there's anything non ideological to explain American success, or somewhere within that there is a question. Is the United States distinct from all these other countries that have gone through all this hell and violence? And of course, we have a civil war, but that. Are, are we non-ideological and distinct from the rest of humanity, or do we somehow fit in with them as well? I, uh, I think we fit in with them as well. Um, you've asked that question, and you made reference to basically the, the second set, the, the uh, uh, repulsive or deplorable ideologies that I mentioned, which has been the the main source of study uh, for a particular group of people of which I'm a, I'm a member. Uh, with the, uh, let's just say, uh, I have a section here uh, where I looked at uh, Western Marxism, contemporary Marxism, most of whom, most of the followers of whom have given up on this economic history of the world, the laws of history, that is just not popular anymore. They're dropping that. What, when they get rid of that, when they get rid of the notion that class, economic class, determines the ideas uh, in an existing culture, you know, I say, what's left? Why would you want to even call yourself a Marxist? What's left? And I go back to the, an excellent article that I used a lot, I think you could tell, by Emmett Kennedy that was just a history of the term from de Tracy up to Marx. And he was the one who said that uh, de Tracy, when, they, when he introduced the uh, new science, they had an agenda. Going over this, I would, my supposition, my hypothesis is this. We're back now, and I think you could say with some, with some uh, uh, evidence, we're back now to ideology as a study. That's what Frieden, that's what Eagleton seemed to be talking about. And my question is, but is it with an agenda? I don't know the connections, but I know in reading this material, what's very, very clear is the whole basis for political correctness is in this. With the emphasis upon linguistic competition, uh, indeed, Frieden argues that ideology is essentially a comp competition for control of language. In addition to that, they both, Frieden and uh, uh, Eagleton, refer to identity politics, the, I, the, the group Various groups uh, have replaced the economic class as the source, if you will, and in effect create a culture of their own based upon their identity and that politics is carried on in, in that sense today. What you also see here is the basis for the, uh, the uh, uh, popular excitement about microaggression. I'm get too close to uh, that's, all, that's all present here. But everything that's taking place in this room, according to freedom, everything is, a, is an uh, evidence of political thought behavior 
And so there's a political element. There is a struggle for power in all of this right now. So your, your question, your remarks, your response, the way you're sitting in the chair, all, none of that can be eliminated from the study of ideology in that sense. And I'm just, I'm wondering, thank you. I feel, I feel much, less, much less impressed. Uh, but I wonder if, if uh, in some way, Maybe not the particular authors that I've looked at here, but certainly people within that look at this and, and get the ideas for such things as the political correctness. Uh, that, that certainly is, is going through the United States today. That is, I think, the, the most recent and perhaps one of the most effective uh, uh, ideological assaults on our culture that we've seen yet. No, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I've been reading with as somebody that <clears throat> was introduced as having a strong interest in um, orientation and the humanities. I've been reading about, they use the word assault, um, the attack and the assault on humanities on college campuses. The explanation being that it's um, uh, the genesis of it is a postmodernism uh, thought. And I'm not sure if that's, if that's true or not. But that seems like a it's just a cursory reading of um, uh, some of the postmodernists from France and whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, more of a nihilistic kind of ideology. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. you were describing in some of the definitions sort of an idealistic thing. It seems very pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to me, this is very disturbing because you know, it, it's one thing to re replace something with something that you think is ideal and better. It's another thing just to tear something down for the sake of tearing, tearing it down. And just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the broader conception of ideology that is held by, and, and there's so many of them, I, I, I don't know who, I, I, and they, apparently there's so many differences of opinion, but there also seems to be a sympathy for one another in these ideas. But uh, the, the broad conception of ideology is, is uh, coextensive with culture. It's all of culture. And what they find, if, if you look through both Frieden uh, and Eagleton, uh, there is an awful lot about our culture that's not to like. And uh, a, lot of it certainly, a lot of it certainly goes to uh, corporate politics and the big corporations and capitalism. But then you get down on the other levels, and we have found that aggression exists between people in their gestures and in their aggression is every place. The, the attempt to dominate is, is every place. And what you find in some of these is that the, what we're going for is freedom in the sense of an absence of aggression, which I don't think is possible. But so I would argue that so much as I understand of it, the goal here is an impossible one. The goal here is, is a visionary. It, it, it's something that cannot possibly exist. But I also notice in the United States today with uh, uh, the political correctness movement, and for example, in uh, the, the destruction of uh, and the taking down of, of uh, Civil War uh, statues and, and all of that, that is, to me, uncomfortably like uh, erasing the past. Burning books and it's, it's erasing the past. It's, it's the Lenin picture all over again. You just airbrush out uh, Lee, you airbrush out uh, Stonewall, you airbrush out any of that, that that you can't have. It's childish in a sense that you're going to present the world with a history of nothing but good people. That's ridiculous. But having said that, it also strikes me as here is an attempt to not only attack culture as it exists now, but then to go back and erase everything in the past that one disagrees with. I thought... Uh, for a long time, I've, before looking at this material, uh, I'm a, a great fan of A. James Gregor, who was a student of fascism and also a student of China, and he's one who argued that the present Chinese regime is probably more of a fascist regime than it is a, a classical Marxist regime. Uh, but what he was, uh, what he argued and, and presented there is the, in a, an essay entitled The uh, Fascist Ideology, he described uh, Mussolini's uh, change of heart, if you will, up to 19, I think 1913, maybe 14 or 15, Mussolini was still well within the party. He was the editor of one of the, the uh, socialist, communist party, Marxist party uh, uh, journals. And 
as we all know, I assume, uh, from the Marxist point of view, the proletarian consciousness was eventually going to be raised to the level that we all recognized us proletarians, that it's foolish to fight the proletarians from other countries. What a war does is simply pits the workers of both countries to eliminate themselves while the aristocrats and the capitalists, you know, sit safely out of all this. But it didn't work. It didn't happen, which is also one of the uh, uh, points that uh, Roger Gottlieb makes for the, the uh, emergence of Western uh, Marxism. Some of these predictions just weren't taking place. And so what, uh, according to Gregor, what uh, Mussolini did, in effect, uh, and I think my idea of this is oversimplified, but he basically pulled out class from the Marxist framework and just plugged in nationalism worked because people were ridiculously willing to fight for their country. They were willing to fight for Italy. They were willing to fight for nationalist purposes. Having said that, it seemed to me that provided, if you will, a prototype for other groups. And in this book by Roger Gottlieb, which I, I also would recommend, it's from uh, Western Marxism from uh, the late 19th century into feminism. So clearly, you pull out class and put in gender, same thing. You pull out class, you put in race, same thing. So with that in mind, uh, at the present time, it, it seems to me that the existing Marxist logic and its goal, of, its impossible goal, as Niemeyer used to say, it's uh, uh, not a real possibility, it's a possible reality, uh, is nihilistic because it's destroying everything that exists for the sake of something that cannot exist. Yeah. I think I can infer your position on this from the comments on PCs, but um, some conservative thinkers, pundits, or let's say ideologues have made the connection between the fervent uh, activism on climate change and compared it to religion. And it has a, it has a, uh, uh, a yeah. beginning story, a fall yeah. from grace, a way to salvation, and a complete eschatology. How do you, would you fit this into the second meaning of ideology? Interesting, because I, I had a paragraph and then I erased it because the, the paragraph that I wrote, I looked at it was wrong. Because I also, I, I, there's an excellent book called The Dark Side of the Left by, I can't think of his name. He's a liberal uh, from, I think, Kansas. It's, a, it's an excellent text. Uh, and he has a paragraph in his preface where he says, from the title of this book, you probably assume that I'm some you know, right-wing ideologue. He says, well, I'm a member of the ACLU. I, I voted for every Democrat since then. goes down the list. He's, it's an example I take to be of intellectual honesty. He just calls them as he sees them. He has a chapter on apocalyptic environmentalism. And while it's tempting, it is certainly, if you will, it's a narrative cast upon the world it doesn't have a happy ending all the time. So that some of these narratives cast upon the world where that I would think is ideological, if you will, that is apocalyptic. Some of them end happily, some of them end with all of us dying. So it, it departs from the, the, the uh, uh, millenarian salvation uh, scenarios in that regard. But in other regards, it's very similar. It's very similar to that. Thank you very much.